Chapter 3 of Dog Watches at Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dog Watches at Sea by Stanton H. King. Chapter 3 On a Lee Shore. In Barbados it is considered degrading for a white man to do manual labor. Occasionally you will find a white man working at a trade, or serving on the police force, or making a living by catching flying fish, but they are socially ostracized. They must associate with the Negroes who are expected to do all the laborious work on the island. A white man's work is to manage a sugar plantation, to be a clerk in an office or store, or to follow the profession of a minister, doctor, or lawyer. So also with the women, with the exception of a few who serve behind the counters of the largest clothing stores. They live lives of idleness with Negro servants at every beck and call. As a boy I was impressed with the idea that sailors were the only white men who were allowed to labor aboard their ships, and were still thought respectable. Perhaps my brothers being sailors created the impression. How be it, the next morning after landing in Bermuda, when I started with a letter in my pocket from my mother to find Captain Hill's house, the strangest thing to me was to see the familiarity that existed between the white and black Bermudians. Colored men meeting white men on the streets would address them by their first names without prefixing the Barbados title of Massa. Along the road I could look over the stone walls and there see the whites and blacks working side by side in the onion and potato fields. To cap it all, after finding Captain Hill and receiving from him the welcome of his big fond heart, I was introduced to the Negro boys in that part of Port Royal Parish as only Harry King. I soon became acquainted with them, and for five weeks I worked cheerfully with them, weeding onions in Captain Hill's gardens. One morning, when not yet six weeks in Bermuda, I went with Captain Hill to the town of Hamilton. Before we started for home, I had visited the Bermudian brigantine Excelsior, and had made arrangements with Captain Mayer, her master, to sail with him to New York as cabin boy. When I told Captain Hill of my intended trip, I could see that it distressed this good old friend to have me leave him, but his knowing the captain of the Excelsior helped to make him yield, though he did so reluctantly. The following day I was on the sea again, bound to New York City. There is not much to relate in a passage of this kind. It was spring and the weather was fine, with the exception of a stiff blow in the Gulf Stream for twenty-four hours. We reached New York on the seventh day out from Bermuda, when a towboat brought us safely to Pier 24, North River. Then it fully dawned upon me what activity meant in this world, 
and that it was honorable for a white man to work for his living. We remained eight days in New York, and in that short time I was afforded the opportunity of visiting a sister in Brooklyn, and of seeing a few of the sights of a large city. It was the first time I had seen a steam locomotive, so that I could have the satisfaction of saying I had ridden on the railroad, I walked to the battery, and ascending to the platform station of the elevated road, I traveled as far as my five cents would carry me. I supposed I must have been to Harlem. Anyhow, the conductor told me this was the end of the line, and passing out of the station I turned, and paying another five cents, rode back to the battery. We sailed away for Bermuda, and in two months' time we made two more such voyages to New York with onions and potatoes, on each return trip taking back to Bermuda a cargo of breadstuff. At the end of the third voyage from New York, the Excelsior was hauled into the middle of Hamilton Harbor and there moored till the following year. I remained at Captain Hill's house for eight months, not only welcomed by him and his good wife, but treated as though I were their own son. I had no desire to go to school, so I passed the time working in the field, running errands, and trying to make myself of some service to my dear, kind friends. Bermuda is rightly termed the refuge. Many vessels, leaking or dismasted, or in distress of some kind, have found a refuge in the harbors of this cluster of numerous small islands in mid-Atlantic. In the harbor of Hamilton, as well as St. George, there are old hulks along the shore, washed by every tide and wave. These hulks were once fine sailing ships, but in old age, no longer able to battle with storm and gale, they are shoved heartlessly aside. There is no picture more sad to me than to see what was once a thing of life, mastering the storms and gales of ocean and sea, reduced to a skeleton, forsaken by friends, its body left in some out-of-the-way place to be mercilessly and slowly torn to pieces by the waves on a foreign shore. On my way to Hamilton one morning in the following March, I was surprised to see that the Excelsior had been moved from her mooring in the stream and was lying alongside of the wharf. Knowing it was too early for the onion season, I hastened on board. Finding Captain Mayer there, I inquired the reason of this change. He told me that his brig had been chartered to take grain from a Russian ship at anchor in a place called Murray's Anchorage on the coast of Bermuda. This Russian ship, bound from New York to some port in France with grain, had sprung a leak and had put in for repairs. Being so large a ship, the greater part of her cargo must be lightened before she could cross the harbor bar of St. George. He wanted a cook and four sailors. I had been his cabin boy for three trips to New York, and with a feeling of confidence in my knowledge of cooking, I asked him to take me as cook. I can see the broad grin on his face 
and hear his merry laugh as he chokingly said, You be blowed. You couldn't keep water from burning. After coaxingly remonstrating with him, he half-jokingly said, Yes, I'll take you to help the cook. I ventured to say, What's my pay, Captain? Pay, is it? We'll talk that over when I see what you can do. Of all the open roadsteads in which I have dropped anchor during my twelve years at sea, I have never found any to equal Murray's anchorage for exposure and danger. There is a verse known to sailors, If Bermuda let you pass, then look out for Cape Hatteras. On a clear, calm morning in the month of March, a towboat came alongside, took the end of our hawser, and that afternoon we were made fast alongside the Russian monster. All the gear had been made ready for hoisting the grain from one ship to the other, and the working of unloading and loading began. At sunset, when work was stopped for the day, we had taken four hundred bags of grain aboard. It was a calm, peaceful evening. The crews of both ships had turned into their bunks for the night, save one man on each ship who was keeping the anchor watch. It was close to midnight when I felt our brig moving, and her tossing and pitching awakened me. I heard the deafening noise and uproar of timbers crashing. Hastily getting on deck, I found our ship grinding herself against the side of the Russian, and every man doing his best to save both vessels from drifting upon the rocks. A heavy gale had sprung up, a hateful nor'wester from Hatteras. With it had come a sea from the open Atlantic, which seemed to take delight in crushing the ships together. The Russian let go his second anchor, paid out all his chain, then cast our lines adrift. We quickly began to drop astern, but in so doing we smashed a part of our bulwarks and carried with us, as we scraped and thumped along his side, the bumpkin for his port main brace and the boat hanging at his after davits. It was well the yards of both vessels were braced in opposite directions. Had they been otherwise, so that we could have entangled each other's rigging, there is no telling what the result might have been. We kept going astern for about three hundred yards when both our anchors were let go and all the chain in the lockers paid out. As the sternway was checked by the strain of the mooring chains, our brig began to show her outies. Up and down she bobbed and curtsied. Her bow was buried in the sea at one moment, and in another was lifted high, as though she were resting on her stern. The old-fashioned windlass began to show signs of weakness, as though it was being torn from the deck by the incessant jerking of the anchor chains. A new coil of rope was hauled up from the lazarette, and with blocks from the bosun's locker we rove off two long tackles, wrapping strong straps on each anchor chain forward of the windlass, just inside the hawse pipes, under the small tagallant forecastle, we hooked on the falls, 
overhauling them till the after-blocks could reach the straps placed around the lower part of the mainmast. As she buried her nose, we got a strain on the tackles which relieved the windlass from the severe jerking of the chains. I was as busy as anyone in this work on deck. Though a mere lad, not fourteen, I could hold a turn, pass this and the other thing, and help in many ways. We were on deck the rest of the night, clearing up the wreck, and expecting every moment to see the chain tackles eased by the parting of the cables, and our ship dashed to pieces on the rocks of the shore. Fortunately we had some grain in our vessel, or surely she would have rolled over that night. At daylight, after a night of dreadful anxiety and suspense, we made fast the English ensign under the jib-boom, tying a piece of iron at the lower part to keep it hanging up and down, so that the man in the signal station on shore could see that we were calling for a tug to come to our assistance. It was blowing too hard, and too heavy a sea was running, however, for a tug to dare to come out, so that day and all the next night we had to endure the strain until the gale moderated. The following afternoon the wind shifted to the east and died out to a peaceful calm. We worked hard and got our vessel straightened out again, hove in one of our anchors, and passed a quiet night. Next morning a rope was passed to the stern of the Russian, our anchor weighed, and we hauled alongside the full rigger and loaded our brig to the hatches with bags of grain. The towboat got hold of us and safely docked us at the wharf in the harbor of St. George. Here the cook, through some trouble at home, had to leave the ship, and I was made cook for the rest of the time. We made four trips to the Russian, removing cargo enough to enable her to cross the bar in safety. We were then towed back to Hamilton and made ready for taking on a cargo of onions for New York. If ever a boy felt rich in this world's goods, it was I when Captain Mayer gave me four English sovereigns, all my own, for services during the time we were unloading the grain from the Russian ship. Better still, I felt as though I was of some importance when he told me I did very well. We made a trip to New York and back again, and then loaded onions for a second trip. In saying good-bye to Captain Hill this time, I told him that I should leave the Excelsior in New York this trip, and find something to do there, as she was expected to lay up in Hamilton for another year on her return. I shall always remember the farewell words of this uncommon friend as he shook my hand. He said, Boy, I like you. Come back whenever you want to. My home is yours. He made an impression on me that has been ever helpful in making me kindly toward young men who are friendless. We arrived in due time at New York. I had six English sovereigns, which I changed for American money, 
and saying good-bye to Captain Mayer, his mate Mr. Harvey White, the colored cook and colored sailors of the Excelsior, I started, with my clothes chest, on an express wagon, and made my way to my sister's in Brooklyn. The very next day, in my wanderings around the outskirts of this beautiful city, I called at the office on the grounds of the unexcelled fireworks factory, and asked the owner to give me work. Seeming satisfied with the answers I gave to his questions, he engaged me to charge Roman candles, for three dollars and fifty cents a week, which was fair pay for a green boy. It being some two miles from where my sister lived, I made an agreement with the proprietress of a German boarding-house to lodge and feed me and wash my clothes for three dollars and twenty-five cents a week. Living at home with his parents, a boy earning three dollars and a half a week can, with his parents' help, make his way. For five months I worked merely for my board. Nearly all of my earnings were used for living expenses. I had even at this early stage of my life acquired the tobacco habit. So, with an occasional smoke, a new overcoat, and other necessary clothes, my exchequer reached a low ebb. One evening after the factory was closed, I became involved in an argument with a boy of my own age and size. We came to blows, which ended for me with a pair of bloodshot eyes. This was my first real fight. Brought up tenderly by a loving mother, and unfamiliar with the science of boxing, I did indeed get the worst of it. I hung my head with shame as I walked away from the crowd that had gathered, not because I had fought, but because I had been so easily whipped. I would have given anything to remain in my boarding-house until my face had lost its marks of the strife, but knowing no money, no eaty, as the coolies would say, I made my way to the factory next morning. Without asking me any questions, the owner of the factory discharged me as soon as he saw the condition of my face. With half a week's wages in my pocket, I felt alone in this world as I stood outside the factory gate. What should I do? Oh, the refuge of a mother! I could plainly see her face before me. I decided to go home to her. Making my way to the East River wharves of New York City, where Trowbridge's West Indian sailing vessels were moored, I found a bark called the Atlantic, loading for Barbados. I reached her deck and begged the captain for a place as cabin boy. My hopes were blighted when he said, I don't carry a cabin boy. The cook does all the work himself. I begged to be shipped on deck as a deck boy, and was told that he carried six sailors and no boy. I was too small to ship as able seaman. My disappointment was so great that I could no longer keep from crying. I had surely thought I could sail home to my mother on this ship. Captain Lanfair, whose name I afterward learned, 
was a kind-hearted fatherly man and seeing my grief questioned me as to my birthplace and parentage i think i see him before me as standing erect he took my face in his two sunburnt hands and with a smile that filled my whole soul with joy told me he knew of my father and that i could go home with him the atlantic was to sail that evening i hastened back to my german boarding-house settled with my boarding mistress and engaged a junk dealer to take my clothes chest to the ship for one dollar it was about three o'clock that afternoon when i arrived at the ship my clothes were put into the cabin i settled with the junk man for conveying my chest on board and then discovered i was yet the possessor of six cents a nickel and one copper cent boy-like i walked up the dock to the waterfront to invest my wealth at a peanut stand on south street i must have been gone an hour when on reaching the wharf again i found to my sorrow the atlantic was gone standing on the edge of the pier i could see her following in the wake of the towboat being towed out to sea there have been other times when i have felt the horror of loneliness in this world but being older it was more easy to endure what was i to do without clothes without a cent in my possession i felt the misery of being nobody in the world the thought came to me to steal my way across the ferry and ask help of my sister in brooklyn but no at that time and at other times in my life i have suffered severe privations rather than ask alms of a relative my mother when she was alive was the sole refuge where i felt i was sincerely welcomed i knew her love made what was hers mine how much suffering i might have avoided if only i had trusted in the love of relatives and friends it was in the fall of the year my overcoat was gone with the rest of my clothes cold and hungry i remained on the pier till long after dark and it was entirely destitute of human life i then made my way up the dock into the city whose very lights seemed to frighten me walking along cherry street i heard the sound of music coming from the open door of a liquor saloon i ventured to walk in there was a bar where men and women were drinking at the farther end of the room was a slightly raised platform on which four men were seated playing on some musical instruments the only space in front of the bar between it and the musicians was crowded with noisy men and women dancing this vile wretched den filled with tobacco smoke and drunken men and women was part of a sailor's boarding-house i must have been standing there some fifteen minutes when a fat slovenly middle-aged woman approached me and pointing to the door said 
Get to hay out of this. I could not move. Fear or something else held me as though I was glued to the floor. With a blow from her fist, I was knocked to the ground. I kept quiet, fearing if I moved, worse things would happen to me. Seeing my outstretched form on the floor, she, either suffering with remorse or thinking I was seriously hurt, told two men, whom I afterward learned by experience were her bullies, to carry me to the back room. I was taken to her sitting-room in another part of the house, where I was placed on an old worn sofa. Gradually I made believe I was regaining consciousness, and as soon as she thought I was in my right mind, in sentences of the coarsest blasphemy, she questioned me as to my right on earth. After telling her all my trouble, I merely said I was hungry. On a table close by, she placed a dish of cold potatoes and a glass of lager beer, saying, Get on the outside of that, you brat. The beer, which was my first glass, and the potatoes quickly disappeared, and an agreement was made with her that I should stay in her house and work for my board till she could get me a ship. While staying within that incarnate devil's home, I existed more on kicks and cuffs than on anything else. End of chapter 3